Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Good to see everybody watching online as well. And let me invite us all to open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 once again. And thank you to Pastor Joe for leading us well and praying with and for us in the congregational prayer. We also want to be praying for Joe and Helen this week, as Helen is due on Tuesday to welcome in uh, their third child, the baby daughter. And so, ready or not, um, we want to be praying for them this week. And uh, maybe you have noticed that over the past several months, you've been getting a lot of emails with the meal train. Meal train, meal train is something that a dear member of Grace oversees for us, where we want to provide meals for uh, families who just um, had a child, or for somebody maybe who went through a surgery and would struggle to prepare meals for themselves. It's one of the most practical and loving ways that we can just care for one another in, uh, in the body of Christ. And uh, there was just a couple weeks ago, we, uh, James and Kelly McWilliams welcomed their son, uh, and outside of the U's, there are two other families expecting in the month of December uh, here at Grace, as well as I think a couple of surgeries that, that we have kind of meal train kind of mapped out for. So as you see that email, I know a lot of you are just faithful. You just sign up for every single time. Um, it's a loving thing that you love to do and serve. Uh, but we want to expand the amount of people that are competing for spots uh, to love each other in that way. And, and uh, it's also such a witness to the world. I know um, when we receive those meals and others we've heard, uh, they have family and friends and neighbors who are just like, who are all these people just coming up to your door multiple times a week with meals? Like, like what is that? What's happening right now? Um, and so it's a great picture for the world uh, to see. And then if also briefly, I'm going to add just my two cents in regard to the Grace Seminar that is tonight at six o'clock. And it is uh, my growing conviction and one of the reasons that we are launching these Grace Seminars and want to see them done throughout the year a few times is uh, that I firmly believe that the churches of tomorrow that are going to be effective in making disciples in our area, uh, that's going to have an impact in this world, will be the ones who are, among other things, clear on the issues of identity and personhood. Uh, starting with our identity with Christ, our union with Christ, really uh, being able to know that, experience that, explain that, and live that out. But then also in regards to the imago Dei, that, that the imaging God in all persons, uh, which should be fundamental in the way that we interact with the world we're seeking to reach. The personhood of others made in God's image. Because I think a lot of things have gone out of whack in terms of how professing Christians tend to see others. And again, many professing believers in our day are telling on themselves. They're telling on themselves by the way they act and interact with others, especially with others that they might not agree, agree with on certain issues like identity and personhood as well. So when it comes to the two questions, who am I and who are you? are two questions that Christians need to be clear on if we're going to faithfully proclaim the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? And if that's going to be vital for the church of tomorrow, uh, then we want to be a church that is being equipped on identity and personhood today. Uh, yes, for ourselves, for the way that those of us who are raising children, for those of us who are engaged in children's ministry here at Grace and we're shaping that next generation. Um, also, for those, uh, the way that we just want to reach our neighbors and those who do not, do not yet know Christ, uh, 
now, with that said, tonight's seminar, it's not going to answer every single question about that. We might try. We're going to try to see what Dr. Brent Browns can do for us tonight. But ultimately, we want to just lean into this. We want to get excited about getting equipped in the ways that God's going to use us to reach this world. And so I do think it will be worth your time this evening at 6 o'clock. Uh, its plan is an hour and a half. We're going to stick to that. Uh, there's childcare through grade five. They're going to be watching a movie downstairs. Uh, youth ministry will still be happening in the annex for middle school and high school uh, this evening as well. So uh, no excuses. Let's all be here tonight. I uh, hope you can come on through. Well, we're in the second week now of our Advent sermon series that we are calling An Unexpected Christmas. If you were here last week, you heard that the overarching theme of this series is that while there is a whole lot we have come to expect about this season, it can distort the reality of just how unexpected that first Christmas was. And as I was thinking about it this past week, among the most expected aspects of this season that I want to zero in, zero in on is the presence of lights. Have you thought about this? You can see up here that we have come to expect lights on trees, lights in windows, lights on the gutters, lights on lawns, lights in stores, lights in all the downtown displays. I know Ridgewood had their uh, tree lighting this past Friday. Maybe other towns have as well. I know New York City had their big tree lighting. That's nationally televised. It's the main event, and it's given away uh, in its very name. The, the main event of all of those displays is when the tree is lit up. So that the way my brain works, that led me to ask the question, why and how did lights become so associated with and expected at Christmas? Why do we expect to see lights? Why do we take our family to those neighborhoods that are known around Burton County that have houses that are decked out in lights? Well, historians traced it back to the 1600s in the country of Germany. Did you know this? That Christmas lights started, obviously this is before electricity, uh, as candles. And candles were lit to signify the light of Jesus. And they would be attached to the Christmas trees. Which, fun fact, also started in Germany uh, about a thousand years prior. But now in the 1600s, a tradition started to attach candles to the tree to light up the ornaments. So at night... What would happen is that a family or friends would gather around a tree on Christmas Eve. They would light the candles on the tree. They'd let it burn for only a few minutes before having to blow them out so the whole tree does not turn into fire. But from there, slowly, surely, that tradition started to spread. Over the next couple hundred years, spread throughout Germany to then surrounding countries where much of Europe into the United States was doing this tradition of lighting a candle on Christmas Eve. And then things changed in 1880. Those who know your history, you might know why. Thank you, Thomas Edison. The invention of the light bulb. And the candles began to be replaced by electric lights. 1882, the first tree that was lit by electric lights was seen in, take a guess where? New York City. Where else? 1890, you start to get the first mass production of the Christmas tree light strings. Very expensive when they came out, so you didn't see them in residential homes, but you start to see them in the big uh, department stores. 
And then over the coming decades, they become to be more mass-produced, more affordable. You start seeing them in homes. Fast forward to 1927. The first outdoor Christmas lights were made. Now lights that are not just on the tree, you can put outside your home safely in all weather conditions. And from there, it kind of takes off. Where the expansive use of lights at Christmas time tracks the technological advances of lighting in general. And from there you go from bubble lights to novelty lights to icicle lights to tube and track lights to up lights and most recently to LED Christmas lights. But all that to say, why did it start? Someone in Germany thought it'd be a neat thing to signify the light of Christ on their tree on Christmas Eve with a candle. And what started as candles attached to a tree for a few minutes 400 years ago has led to now the widespread and very much expected presence of Christmas lights to the point where it would be hard for us, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be hard for you to imagine this season without lights? It even makes it worth it like we experienced in our home and Rochelle experienced last weekend to spend hours untangling those stinking lights with no small amount of frustration, just to get them on the tree and be able to plug it in each day. And the reason why that intrigues me, and why I went down this rabbit hole this past week, is that while lights are, again, very much an expected part of how we celebrate Christmas, it can cause us to forget the reality that the original advent began in utter darkness. Spiritual darkness. Author Fleming Rutledge wrote, quote, Advent always begins in the dark. It doesn't end in the dark, but it always starts there. And so even as Joe was praying, um, we did not plan and coordinate his prayer, but for those who are experiencing, tend to experience around the holidays, or maybe this time of Christmas season is a time where you feel like you're especially experiencing a certain dark night of the soul, Maybe, and perhaps, you are actually closer to the original experience of Advent. And we will not feel the power of the light of Christ until we first feel the reality of darkness that he entered into. And so that's going to guide our passage this morning. It's a familiar passage. It's Matthew chapter 1. Last week we did verses 1 to 17. This week we're going to do verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, 
and he called his name Jesus. Again, last week we uh, dug into the least familiar Christmas passage in Matthew, the genealogy. And now we move to quite possibly one of the most familiar passages, the angel coming to Joseph and then the actual birth of Jesus. And that presents a challenge in its own right, doesn't it, right? Because the birth of Christ, or what we call the incarnation, may very well be the most incredible miracle the world has ever seen. The eternal son taking on flesh, being born of a woman, fully man, fully God. And yet we hear this every single year. We hear that read, and you knew it was coming. You hear that that he was born, and they called his name Jesus, and nothing. (laughs) Because we know it. And so maybe we just need to say a silent prayer for ourselves that we would not be so over-familiar with something that it does not blow us away in the way it ought to. And I want to approach this familiar passage, as strange as it may sound, from a little bit of a different perspective, in that I want to approach it from the perspective of darkness to show just how unexpected that light of Christ was. So four things we're going to see this morning. Uh, Number one, Jesus was born at an unexpected time. Jesus was born at an unexpected time. The the Jewish people, uh, and now what we consider at the turn of the the first century, were were covered by darkness in in every way imaginable, but primarily politically and spiritually. Uh, Politically, the Jewish people have not experienced lasting freedom as a nation for 400 to 500 years. From the time they went into exile in the Old Testament to the post-exile period, which we saw in the book of Ezra, when they were back in their homeland, they were still under the oversight and ultimately the sovereign rule of foreign powers. From the Babylonians to the Persians, where the Old Testament narrative ends, to the intertestamental period of 400 years, where the rulers, if you know your world history, changed from Alexander the Great and the Greeks to runs with the Egyptians and the Syrian dynasties, and then finally by the Roman Empire starting in 63 B.C., the empire that would be in power at the time of Jesus' birth. And by that time, they had expanded their empire's borders far beyond any other of the empires that came before them. They were the largest, most powerful empire of the ancient world. And so while the Jews, as we see in the Gospels, had uh, some level of freedom to worship their God, they were under the close and watchful eye of Rome, who decisively would take action whenever they perceived a threat coming from the Jews. And that ultimately climaxed in 70 AD, about 35 years after Jesus was crucified, when they destroyed the temple. But even darker than the political climate of the time was the spiritual darkness of the Jews. They had not heard from God for 400 years. No prophet, no promises, no inklings that God was about to move. It was silence, darkness, 400 years. And while certain individuals that we read in the Gospels uh, that we know of that were uh, kind of walking faithfully with God still against all odds, the the, the governing bodies of the Jews and the majority of the Jewish population had largely uh, drifted away from God's rule and reign. 
You had some, like a group called the Sadducees, who had linked up with the Romans to curry favor with them and had a strange blend of nationalism and religion. And then you had others, like the Pharisees, who created these legalistic laws and penalties that ruled over the common Jewish people. And by this kind of rigid obedience, they thought they put themselves in right standing with God by, by sheer will, by sheer determination, by being good enough. And they represent the two ways that still exist today to reject God. There's two ways to reject God. One, by rejecting his law and living any way we see fit, like the Sadducees largely did. Or, by relying on obedience to his law so as to earn salvation, very much like the Pharisees did. One is rejection through the ways of the world. The other is rejection through the ways of religion. And Jesus was born into utter spiritual darkness. Advent always begins in the dark. And in the Old Testament, when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, do you remember the ten plagues? Do you remember the ninth plague that Moses put upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt? It was the plague of darkness. I want to read a verse from there. I'm going to have it projected on the screen. This is Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. That phrase has haunted me ever since I came across it. A darkness to be felt. You know why? Because in some ways, it makes no sense. And in other ways, it makes perfect sense. A darkness you can feel. The nation of Israel was in the kind of darkness you can feel. Unexpected time. And then number two, Jesus was born to unexpected parents, or you could say to unexpecting parents. As many of you know, the Gospel of Matthew focuses on the angel's appearance to Joseph before Jesus was born. And then the Gospel of Luke focuses on an angel's appearance to Mary. And again, these appearances are so familiar to us. I mean, we read them every single year, don't we? Like, we, we, you probably have it memorized. You could sketch it out. You could tell somebody how the birth of Christ came to be because there's a time of year that we talk about it every single time. But just because we expect the stories now, again, it can cloud our fact. I want to kind of remove the fog a little bit to us to be able to see even a little bit just how unexpected this was. And therefore, how difficult it was for them to hear and obey. Joseph and Mary obeyed while in darkness because of their faith in the light. They obeyed in darkness because of their faith in the light. Um, when Mary, in the Gospel of Luke, was told by the angel uh, that she will be with child, her response was that she was greatly troubled at the saying and asked, how can this be since I am a virgin? And then at the end of the conversation, Mary was not like, yes, God chose me. How awesome am I? All of history has led up to this moment. This is amazing. I'm going to tell everybody I know. Is that what Mary said? No, here's what she said. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. 
Why? Because obedience in the dark is a scary thing. We romanticize it, but obedience while still in the dark is a scary thing. This was totally unexpected. But we know God chose Mary. Well, do you know why? Why did God choose Mary? Here's the answer. Because he did. Because he chose her. His grace, his choice. We, we, we do not believe uh, that, uh, as the Catholic Church does, that Mary was sinless herself. And I don't mean to be callous here, but you know why we don't believe it? Because the Bible doesn't say it. She was a normal, young Jewish woman who was likely between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. She was betrothed to Joseph, but not married Betrothal in Jewish custom was how we generally think of an engagement to be married, except that in Jewish custom, it was legally binding. A betrothal was a period of approximately one year where a man and woman were bound to one another, but they lived apart and they were not intimate. And the only thing left to do was for the woman to move to the man's home and then physically consummate the marriage. But to break a betrothal was equivalent to breaking a marriage, and that's why it required a legal divorce. Put yourself in this young woman's shoes. She's in a betrothal, and now she's pregnant as a virgin. The virgin birth, the mysterious and yet vital aspect of the incarnation that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, born of a woman and called to be the adopted son of Joseph. And, and we know from what we just read in Matthew that Mary's fears, that maybe she, maybe she was experiencing her fears in the dark, were not irrational because of what we, again, read of Joseph's experience. You know, the dialogue between Mary and Joseph when she told him the news, hey, Joseph, I'm pregnant. We don't know how that conversation went. It's not recorded in Scripture. But however it happened, you know what we do know? Joseph did not believe her. I cannot imagine, maybe some of you can, the anguish Mary felt upon seeing that her husband, to be but legally bound husband, did not trust her. And we know in a patriarchal society that, when, that at this time, women were not allowed to testify in court because they couldn't be trusted. And now Joseph reinforcing that narrative, and he does not believe her. It's easy for us now to, maybe especially for us men, to look back at Joseph and be like, man, how could you? I cannot believe you do not trust her. But I lament at the fact that if I put myself in his shoes, there's a good chance I would not have believed her either. No one in the history of the world to that point had become pregnant without being intimate. And so Joseph, we're told, was a just and righteous man, which we're not even totally know what that means, but that he resolved to divorce her quietly. I don't believe her. I'm going to divorce her. 
but I want to do it quietly. Uh, possibly because the public penalty for Mary getting pregnant to someone else could have been death. But at best, even if she were to live, she would be divorced and unlikely never to be married again. And so he's wrestling with this. Joseph is wrestling with this darkness to be felt in his own mind, in his own heart, when now an angel unexpectedly comes upon him in a dream. And again, Matthew does not record how much he struggled with even hearing that in the dream. Or if, on the other hand, he was relieved that, like, man, Mary was telling the truth the whole time. If I'm Mary, I got some questions for Joseph after this dream. We're like, Joseph, he was so good, he obeyed. And that's true, he obeyed while in the dark. But how about just believing Mary the first time? Maybe a dream would not have been necessary, but I'll leave that aside. But we do know he woke up, and he did as the angel commanded him. And so notice, they both obey while shrouded in the darkness of Advent. Do you see it? Obedience in the dark. They have a lot of questions as a couple right now. What's this going to mean for people to see Mary being pregnant before they're married? What impact would it have in their standing in the community? We know later that Joseph was a carpenter. What was this going to mean for his business? Think it would help? What would it mean for their son? How would he be treated as he grew up knowing the story of how many maybe that wouldn't believe? Jesus was born at an unexpected time to unexpecting parents. But here is where this passage does tell us as to why he was born. Two things. Here's the turn in the passage. Number three, Jesus was born to identify with his people. Jesus was born to identify with his people. One of Matthew's themes in his gospel and very much in his kind of birth narrative is fulfillment. That, that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the person and work of Jesus. And here he said that the angel came to announce his birth to Joseph in fulfillment to what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I'm curious if you are like me and you read scripture and you're kind of thinking about questions as you read. Did you, did you notice this? That just the verse before, the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. But then Matthew says this is in fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy that said they shall call his name Emmanuel. What's going on there? I need to be probably briefer here than I want to be. But this prophecy was given in Isaiah chapter 7. It was given by the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz. Here is the context. Ahaz was feeling the pressure of being at war with two other kingdoms that he knew were after them. Ahaz was looking for some other worldly power, namely Assyria, to link up with to overcome that army. So he calls in a prophet to see what other worldly power he could partner with. And Isaiah says, King, the Lord just wants you to trust him. The Lord will fight for you. And the Lord will give you a sign about this. You know what Ahaz said to that? 
said, Isaiah, I don't want a sign. I want an army to fight with. I don't care about a sign. So Isaiah says, all right, well, the Lord's going to give you a sign anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. As with most Old Testament prophecy, it would be partially fulfilled. There would be the narrative of a birth of a son in the following chapter. It would be partially fulfilled in the near future, but its final fulfillment would not be realized until far later because Ahaz wouldn't listen. It would not go well for him. But then in Isaiah 9, this son is mentioned one more time. And we're told that this time his name shall also be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So follow me here. Here's a picture being painted by Isaiah 700 years before. A virgin will conceive of a son. This boy would be born of a woman as a sign that the Lord will be covering for his people. The Lord will deliver his people from an enemy. But in this boy would be a divine presence of God himself. It's mysterious. It's unexpected. That God would present himself as a human being born. And then nothing else is mentioned of this son or this prophecy for 700 years. Until an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. Says, take Mary as your wife. For she is with son. And you shall call his name Jesus. God presented as a human, a baby, Emmanuel, God with us. And the name they are going to give him, Jesus, was amongst the most common names in the Jewish custom for the Jewish people. To name a baby boy Jesus then would be like us naming a boy John now. It's a familiar name. But in this way, it marks that God came to take on flesh to identify with his people. That he was born into a family with royal lineage, but not to a royal family. They were ordinary. They were lower class. They were common people. He was born into a family under oppression, born into darkness. But that name does not end there. The name Jesus is a Greek translation to a Hebrew name, Joshua. Joshua is a Hebrew name that literally means Savior, which leads to number four. Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. The angel tells Joseph one thing, just one thing in this dream about the future of this unborn baby that is alive in Mary's womb. You shall call his name Jesus, for, here's the one reason he gives them, he will save his people from their sins. That one line tells you the most important thing to know about God's plan about our problem and his solution. 
It tells us everything about God's plan. That from eternity past, God orchestrated all of history for this moment. Remember last week, all his lineage, all his ancestors, all the ups and downs and unexpected and messiness and imperfections of his ancestors, all led and orchestrated to this moment that he would take on flesh and a human nature in order to identify with those who have been made in his image. It tells us about our problem. Of all the issues that we face, of all the issues that people face while living in a fallen world, and there are many, the primary issue, I'm not saying it's the only issue, but the primary issue is not something we can blame on someone else. It's not something that we can blame on a society or a single country or a single time period. There's issues there, for sure, but it's not the primary issue. The primary issue that we have is from within. Every person, again, thinking about the seminar tonight, every person is uniquely made by God. He makes no duplicates. And all of existence has these two things in common, that we are made in his image, in his likeness, the imago Dei. And we all have a fallen nature. We don't have a sinful nature because we sin. We sin because we have a sinful nature. Uh, theologian Herman Bavink says that the entire human race has a common sol solidarity in sin. That moral depravity is characteristic of all people by nature and does not merely arise later in life as a result of one's own misguided deeds. It must be remembered that humanity is not simply an aggregate of individuals, but a dynamic and organic unity of one race, those made in the image of God. And the separation that sin makes between us and our creator, between us and others, between us and the creative order, is our biggest problem. And Jesus was born not to simply give hope to his people, not to inspire hope in his people. Jesus was born primarily to be the hope of his people. He came to be a light that shines into the darkness. And that illumination starts in our own hearts. His solution to overcome darkness, the darkness to be felt, the darkness that every human feels on some level, even if they're not willing to admit it, even if that is suppressed, there's a darkness that we can feel that dwells within us. And so he chose to dwell among us, Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to listen to how the Apostle Paul connects these dots in his letter to a church in the city of Corinth. I'll be on the screen in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Look, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And just as when we are standing in a pitch dark room, we can't just make light ourselves without a source. So too, when we live in the dark night of the soul, dead in sin, which is all of us at one point or another, we cannot make light ourselves without a source. That's why Jesus came. And that light is seen and received by faith, by believing in the name of Jesus, the one who said in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Advent always begins in the dark, but it never ends in the dark. It ends with the light of Christ for those who put their faith in him. And for the believers in Jesus Christ who still currently now feel like they're shrouded in some level of darkness, a darkness of the soul, a struggle, especially in this season, we can trust that Jesus never leaves our side in a season of apparent darkness. Like Mary and Joseph, we can trust him and obey him in the dark. Brothers and sisters, obey him in the dark, knowing that night never lasts forever, and morning will come. And so it's December 5th today, and over the course of the next 20 days, Every time you plug in your Christmas tree and see it light up. Every time you drive through a neighborhood and see houses lit up. Enjoy the beauty. But remember every time you look at them what they signify. The light of Christ shining into the darkness. And maybe in solidarity with some unknown German family, 400 years ago, light a candle on Christmas Eve. Watch it for a few minutes and then blow it out. And then go bear witness to the light of the world by the life you lead. Let's pray. Father, we are eternally grateful, and that is not an overstatement. We are eternally grateful for the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are humbled by the fact that you chose to come and identify with us, even though you were not of us, so that you can save us. Father, I pray that even for all those who, that's a familiar story this morning, Lord, let it fall afresh on us, Lord. Let our hearts explode with joy and gratitude for your glory. Let it long not only for others to know you, Lord, but let it long for us to anticipate your return, that you're coming back that you will put an end to all darkness. And we pray, Lord, that we don't believe that's a fairy tale. That's not pie in the sky, Lord. That is rooted in your word. It will surely happen. Father, allow allow our lives to reflect the fact that we have seen, experienced, and walk in the light. 
and that others by seeing our lives, the way that we love and serve and care for those we're trying to reach, might understand that light. Lord, forgive us for how often we fail, but we thank you that that light will never burn out. And Father, we just pray that you would give us the courage to live, live and lead lives, lives that reflect that truth. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in song?